We are in a sermon series titled, Jesus is the Question. We've been looking at a book by Martin Copenhaver that Copenhaver teaches us that Jesus Christ was more of a question asker than a question answerer. And so the question today in this text that's kind of mysterious that we read, the question Jesus asked the man who was possessed by the demons is, what is your name? That's our question for today. Will you look with me in the bulletin at Mark 5, chapter 1 to 20? This is a mysterious, often misunderstood text. But I tell you, I think there's a powerful message for us here in San Marino, California, this Sunday in this text. They came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gerizines. When he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs came with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before Jesus, and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there on the hillside where a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd of swine, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the Sea of Galilee, and they were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat to leave, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, please anoint these words that they might truly be your living word to us. To that end, pour through me the gift of preaching. And we pray all this with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus, the risen and the reigning Christ. Amen. Our name is really a doorway into our life. If you want to know something about a person, you tell them your name and you ask them their name. But a name tells us something about someone. When I was growing up as a boy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my parents, our family doctor was named Caesar Augustus Garofoli. And Dr. Garofoli always said, I think my parents gave me this name as a fallback position. If I didn't make it as a doctor, I could always be the emperor. And he laughed about his name. But a name also is something that makes you feel good about yourself if somebody remembers your name particularly. 
A girl named Sally went to a church that, where I preached some years ago, and I went to that congregation when I was living in the East and was there as a guest preacher for the weekend doing a renewal event. It's not far from here in Southern California. And I didn't know that Kevin Costner was a member of that church, and this was when Costner was really in his prime. And during the greeting time that Sunday, Kevin Costner and his wife greeted this girl named Sally during just the meet and greet time. And the, she, Sally told them that, he had the, that she had the lead in the school play and she idolized Kevin Costner. She was gaga over him. Well, the greeting ended and we went on with the service. But Sally, when she got home from church, called all her friends and told them all about meeting Kevin Costner. And she said, I told him I was in the school play. And they were saying, oh, sure, Sally. Sure, you met Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah, you told him about the school play. Oh, sure. But the next Saturday night when Sally had a sleepover for three of her girlfriends, guess where they wanted to go to church on Sunday morning? I mean, they wanted to go not so much to see Jesus as I think to see Kevin Costner. So they're waiting in the narthex for the service to begin, and Kevin Costner, this is a true story, came up behind Sally, tapped her on the shoulder and said, hey, Sally, congratulations on having the lead in the school play. Now, what do you think that did for Sally? She was then known all over the school as a friend of Kevin Costner. The fact the guy remembered her name for a week made her somebody. When our church in New York uh, was welcoming homeless people into our midst, uh, we weren't sure exactly what to do, but one of our elders, when we were having a meeting about this, said, I'm going to go out and get to know the homeless people. But somebody said, how are you going to do that? They're homeless for crying out loud. And she said, I don't know. I guess I'm just going to go out and find those sleeping on our steps and say, hi, I'm Margaret. What's your name? What a concept that is. And the, our elders were amazed. We went out, we got to know their name, and all the homeless said, you're the only church that wants to know our name. We slept on other church steps, but nobody got to know us. But, but you value us because you know our name. Now, Jesus got out of the boat after a storm on the Sea of Galilee at this area, at the Decapolis, where the Gerasenes met. And he went in this area, and he met a man, and nobody wanted to know this guy's name either, like the homeless in New York City. Nobody wanted to know his name. He howled. He lived among the dead. He bruised himself. He was dangerous, everybody thought. And, you know, he was the kind of person that everybody ignored. He was isolated. Nobody really wanted to know his name, and they didn't really know his name. People were so afraid of him that they put him in shackles. But every time he broke out of the shackles and the chains, in fact, Mark, the gospel writer Mark says, he was so strong that no one could subdue him. Now, then Mark was on to say that when this man, this demoniac, this man was filled with demons, sees Jesus, he runs toward him and he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, do not torment me. He knows Jesus' name and he knows who he is. Now, he's not a religious person. He's not Jewish. The Jewish people didn't know who Jesus was. The religious people of the day didn't know who Jesus was. But this guy knows. I often wonder, do we know what the demons know? This guy's possessed with demons. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, what is your name? I wonder how long it had been since anybody had asked this guy his name. He said, my name is Legion. The Legion in the Roman world was four to 6,000 soldiers and a legion. They were an army. What he's saying to Jesus is, I'm totally possessed by demons. There's thousands of demons in me. But it's interesting that Jesus looked at this man 
and he casts out the demons from them. He takes these four to 6,000 demons, puts them into the swine, and the swine get agitated. They run to the side of the cliff, and they all jump over into the Sea of Galilee, and they all drowned in the Sea of Galilee, and the demons were dead, and evil was dead, and the swine were dead. And this man, this guy who's possessed by all these demons, howling and bruising himself, this guy, this very guy, is in his right mind. And he's calm, and he's whole, and he's healed, and everyone was amazed. Wouldn't you love to know what Steven Spielberg would do with a script like that? Maybe he'd cast Kevin Costner as the guy with the demons, I don't know. But there's three questions I want to ask in this text. There are three questions that I think unlock the mysterious meaning of this text. Listen to them. First is, where does your identity come from? When Jesus says to the man, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. He's saying, my identity comes from the fact that I'm possessed by lots of demons. My, my life is bruising, howling, breaking out of shackles. That's my life. My identity is wrapped up in who possesses me. But this is one of those Sundays. And this text is one of those texts that I wish I didn't have to preach from this pulpit. I, I wish we could take a walk. Every one of you, I'd like to go with each of you around the campus here, this beautiful campus around the courtyard. Maybe have a cup of coffee in the courtyard because I'd love to ask you, where does your identity come from? Where does mine come from? And I have a hunch if we could do that, every one of us would talk about things we possess and things that possess us. I think, for example, we talk about our title, our position, our career, our degrees earned, our achievements or awards or books we've written or published. I think we talk about boards we serve on, country club memberships we have. I think we talk about maybe our material possessions like homes or vacation homes or cars or boats or something that we own. We might even talk about a family legacy. I have a hunch somebody here was named for your grandfather or a father or a mother or a family name is its way into your name, and your identity comes from, from that possession of having that legacy. But if we're really to be gut-level honest, our lives also have an identity in what possesses us. For example, I know a lot of people who are cancer survivors, and in a sense, they say, my identity is as a cancer survivor, or my identity is that I have Parkinson's, or my identity comes from the fact that I have an addiction I'm addressing I'm involved in a 12-step program. You know, every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting begins the same way. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Don, and I'm an alcoholic. Our identity may be wrapped up in an addiction we have, or maybe our identity, even more poignantly and personally, is wrapped up in a family secret. I know people who have a family member who was, who was incarcerated, but it's a family secret. They don't talk about it. I know families that have had a suicide, but they really don't talk about it. It's a family secret. I know families who've had abuse in their family or somebody hospitalized for mental illness. They don't talk about it. But at Christmas, when everybody gets together in the family, they all know it. It's an elephant in the room, but nobody talks about it. It's a family secret, but it shaped their identity. Now, here's the interesting thing about this scripture. Jesus doesn't see this man for what he possesses nor does he see what possesses him. He doesn't focus on that. Do you remember last week when Jessica talked so eloquently about every human being wants to be seen? 
Jesus saw this guy not for this sort of person, but he saw this person. He saw who he was, and even more importantly, he saw through him to the whole healed person he could become in his right mind. Jesus loved this guy. Jesus loves this guy. And he saw through him to the identity he could have. Question number two, are we willing to let Jesus Christ be the primary source of our identity? Now, don't answer that too quickly. I mean, we all know we've got other things that give us our identity. We just name name them. But what if Jesus Christ was the most important thing in shaping our identity? Here's what I'm talking about. If you take the suffix I-A-N and add it to the end of a word, it means to live in or be born in. So a Bostonian is somebody who lives in or is born in Boston. A Houstonian lives in or is born in Houston. A Californian lives in or is born in California. A Christian is somebody who lives in or is born in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life, if he's the most important thing in shaping our identity, we must let go of our agenda for our lives, control of our lives, and let him take control of our lives. Let me ask you an honest question. Is there anybody here who likes to be in control? Anybody here who's married to somebody who likes to be in control? See, control is an illusion. This guy... Jesus had a bigger agenda for this guy than he could ever imagine. He wants to clothe him in his right mind. He casts all these demons out of him, and now he's sitting there in his right mind. He's a whole new person. And the swineherders go and t- go to the towns, the ten cities called the Decapolis. They come and they bring these people back, and they say, "Look at what happened. Here's Jesus, and here's the guy who's healed." And the people look at this man who's healed, and they look at Jesus, and for the first time in this text. They say, the Bible says, Mark says, they were afraid. Now, were they afraid of the man? He's now healed. Were they afraid of the demons? No, the demons are dead. Were they afraid of evil? No, evil's been destroyed in the, in the sea. What are they afraid of? I think they're afraid of Jesus. Because if he can heal this guy, then he can heal me. And here's a very disappointing reality for God. God wants to heal us. God wants to make us new. But often, if we're honest, I think, we'd have to say, we prefer to stay as we are. We may not want to be healed. We may not want to become a new person. C.S. Lewis captured it when he said, a familiar captivity is frequently more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. We know the captivity. We know it's bad for us. We know this thing holding us into bondage is bad, but it's familiar. And the unfamiliar, we're not used to that, so we prefer to have the captivity. I mean, what if we have to let go of our procrastination or our workaholism or our materialism? What if we'd have to let go of those attitudes in us that are holding us back? You know the attitudes I mean. Resentment, bitterness, anger, jealousy, envy. I could go on and on and on. There are attitudes in you and me, if we're honest, that are like we're demon-possessed. Every now and then, something kind of pops out of us, and we don't know where it came from. Well, it's some attitude in us that isn't quite healed. We're not in our right mind. Have you ever said anything and said, gosh, that wasn't me? How did I say that? It really wasn't me. 
And I wish in our walk today, in the courtyard, having a cup of coffee, I could ask you and you could ask me, if Jesus came to our pew or our place in the choir loft and asked us, if you were me, Jesus might say, where should I start my work to, to change you? If, if you would give me some advice, Jesus might ask us, where do you think you need to be healed? I wonder what we would say. A friend of mine became pastor of a brand new church, and when he became pastor of this church, uh, he started preaching about Jesus, and he preached through the New Testament, but only the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every sermon was about Jesus, and some of the people were a little cynical about, about Jesus. They, they liked their former pastor's sermons, which were more social justice sermons, political sermons. They didn't really like all this talk about Jesus, so one day after about nine or ten months, a woman came out of church, and she said, Jesus, 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 is that all you know anything about? And my friend said, yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) You know, Jesus is pretty much it. The question is, will we let him change us? Or will we be like those people in the Gerizim area that say they beg him to go? Jesus, go, go, go. And notice, when they didn't want him to stay, he left. Think about that. The third question is, are we willing to be Christians, Christ ends right where we are. Now, don't miss the end of the story. This is a brilliant ending. The end of the story is the guy is healed. He's clothed in his right mind. People are afraid of him. They don't know what to make of him, so they ask Jesus to leave the area. And he says, well, no, no, no. If Jesus is leaving and Jesus is getting on the boat, I want to go with you, Jesus. And he runs over to him. He wants to go. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You can't go with me. I want you to stay right here and be a witness to what the Lord has done for you right in your neighborhood with your friends, all the people you've known. Stay right here and bear witness to me right here. Do you know the hardest place to serve God? Right here. The hardest place is, we want to go over there somewhere, but the hardest place to serve God is in this family, in this marriage, in this community, in this school, in this neighborhood, in this church. It's always harder to serve here because people know us here and to say what the Lord has done for us. It's always harder to change here. It's easier to go to another part of the country and live a new life, but it's hard to live a new life right here where we live and where people know us. This is a lesson that Doug desperately needed to hear, and I close with this thought. Doug came to me in 2010. He was a young man, a junior in college, and the Haiti earthquake had just happened. It was, was, there was a Haiti earthquake a few weeks ago, but this was back 11 years ago in 2010, and it ravaged Haiti. It was a terrible earthquake. And Doug had heard about wanting to go there. They needed people to come and help. And he wanted to do a two-month internship with World Vision to go there. And he came to me asking if I would write a letter of recommendation. I was a consultant with his church. And he asked me and his pastor if we would write letters for him to World Vision so he could go for two months. And so I said to Doug, well, I really don't know you. I'd like to get to know you. So we met. And I said, why do you want to go to Haiti? He said, well, I want to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. I said, well, that's a noble thought. What do your parents think of this, going to two months to Haiti? He said, well, they don't know about it. I said, well, now, wait a minute. They don't know about it? He said, no, no. He said, you know, I, I have a speaking relationship with my mom, but I'm really not speaking much with my dad. I said, well, why not? He said, oh, my dad's a workaholic, and he's just into money and materialism, and he's a CEO of a company, and, and he's got a lot of money, and his whole life is this money, 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 and he doesn't care about me, so I'm just going to go to Haiti 
And uh, I'll tell my dad about it when I get back. And I said, well, you, you really can't do that. You shouldn't leave the country without telling your parents. And he said, no, 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 I want to go to Haiti. I want to share the love of Christ with them. And then I'll tell my dad and mother about it when I get back. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, how can you share the love of Christ with the people of Haiti if you don't even love your own dad and mom? I wasn't very popular with Doug when I asked him that question. And and so he said to me, well, you don't understand. I said, no, I think I do understand. But here's the thing. Before I write a letter of recommendation, I want you to try to reconcile with your dad and mom. And he did. He went to them and tried to reconcile. It took longer with his dad. But about two weeks later, Doug and his dad came back. And I noticed when Doug talked about his dad, you know, he was cynical and he was sarcastic and all that. But when he came back, he was much more mellow, but Doug came back with his father, and they made an appointment to see me. And the dad said to me, I'm so glad you didn't sign the letter of recommendation right off the bat. I'm glad you you asked him to reconcile with us, because it really opened my eyes to the fact that Doug thinks I'm a workaholic and materialistic, and I want him to know that I'm also a Christian, and I also believe in this stuff that he believes in. And actually, Tom, what would you think if I went with Doug to Haiti, at least for part of the time? I said, well, it's not important what I think. What's important is what Doug thinks, what you think. And so the two talked about it, and Doug said, I'm, I'm open to my dad going. Actually, I never dreamed he would go, but I won't really think he's going to go until he gets on the airplane, to be honest with you. I don't think he's really going to do it. I think he's going to talk about it like everything else, but he's not going to do anything about it. But Doug and his dad prayed with me in my office, and I prayed they'd be healed, and they'd become clothed in a new mind, and they'd reconcile. Doug's dad went with him for the first two weeks, and he stayed six weeks. His company sent supplies to Haiti and money to Haiti, and they got electricity going in Haiti, and they got some clean water going in Haiti. And Doug, over the time his dad was in Haiti, realized it's not bad to have a dad who's a CEO of a firm and got some influence and has some access and uses his money to serve other people. And Doug had a whole new impression of his dad when he saw his dad working among the poor and sleeping on a cot and sleeping with mud around him and insects around him and in the stench and filth of that Haiti he got a new love and respect of his dad and when they came to see me two months later when this whole thing was over they were like clothed in their right mind <laughs> they, they slapped each other five and they told me about the trip and they told me how much Doug's dad had done to help the poor and how much Doug had done And then they got tears in their eyes when they told about the poor. But the beautiful thing was seeing this father and son loving one another and clothed in their right mind. And you know what happened there? Jesus Christ came in and changed attitudes in their life that were holding them back, both father and son, from being the people God wanted them to be. And they decided not to live out their faith somewhere else. They decided to live it out certainly in Haiti, but also in their relationship with one another. And it was when I saw their love for one another that I realized, man, this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is more powerful than I thought. So my closing question is this. Where does God want to come to your pew and change something in your life and mine that's holding us back from being a Christ in where we are? Jennifer, Cindy, Scott, Knox, Daryl, 
Charlotte, Kay, Marilyn. God knows your name. And God knows what you and all the rest of us need to change to be the whole people God wants us to be. Don't worry, I'm not going to mention everybody's name. I don't know everybody's name. But God does. And God knows the area in your life and mine where we need to change. The question is, will we let Jesus come in and do it? Will we?